Here we go. KGNU listeners, my name is Michelle Simpson, and I'd like to welcome you all to Black Talk. Black Talk airs on the second Thursday of every month at 8.32 a.m. This program is a result of a collaboration between the Boulder County NAACP and KGNU. And what we attempt to do or aim to do on Black Talk is to center Black voices, Black thought, and Black vision. Today, today, folks, I have the pleasure of speaking with someone I've been wanting to have on Black Talk for quite a while. So this is very exciting for me. And this someone is an individual whose story is, to my way of thinking, at once compelling, unique, and indisputably impressive. Today, I'll be speaking with the University of Colorado Regent Wanda James. So, Regent James, welcome to Black Talk. Thank you. I'm very excited about this. I love talking Black. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to do. So, to start, you have referred to yourself as an Air Force brat. When you were growing up, living in Germany and England and Colorado, did you ever dream about, and I'm being somewhat facetious here, but did you ever dream about becoming a CU Board of Regents? In other words, as a little girl, did you think, you know, one day I want to be on that CU, that University of Colorado Board of Regents? <laughs> no, I, 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 I did not. As No, I, I didn't. I, I've been involved in politics now for probably at least 30 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, um, a long time ago in Los Angeles, when I just turned 30, I belonged to an organization called the New Leaders. Okay. Well, first off, we were extremely bold to call ourselves the New Leaders because the old didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> we were the group, it was a group of, of, of young professionals in and out Los Angeles who happened to be black. And we felt like, you know, we wanted to do different things in the city that we hadn't seen done in the city. And we worked to get our congressman elected or reelected. Sadly, he passed away a few weeks after taking office. Oh, so goodness. there was a open seat for first congressional seat. And of course, me and a lot of my friends thought, you know, we're going to show the old folks, you know, how this is done because they don't know what they're doing. We need new leadership. And so I ran for Congress. Right. And I was about 30 years old, I think, when I did that. Well, the old folks taught us a, taught us a very valuable lesson and let us know all of the things that we didn't know back then. But the woman who eventually won was California's first Black female senator, state senator, and she was absolutely amazing. And through this whole time, she was really gracious in teaching me a lot about politics that I didn't know. Okay. And from there, I started James Fox Communications, which was a communications firm that helped politicians with their communications or with crisis, man crisis management. Mm -hmm. From there, I went on to managing different campaigns and throughout California and Colorado when we moved right. here to Colorado, including Jay Fawcett's and Governor Jared Polis's first campaign when he ran for Congress. 
Got it. I always saw myself on the other side of politics. I really enjoy running politics. I mean, running campaigns. I really involve, I really love being involved with the politicians and getting their word out. Because I know how ugly politics is, I never thought that I would step onto the other side of politics. Uh But it was at the governor's wedding when I ran into Congressman Jonah Goose. And we had just found out that the the current regent for CD1 or Denver was stepping down and wasn't going to run for a second seat. And Joe asked if I would help him find a list of people that might want to run in Denver for for Congress. And it was Joe and Linda Shoemaker, who was also a former regent. I went back home that day and I started making a list of some people that I thought might be good for the seat. And, you know, it was really weird because it hit me like a warm gush of water. It kind of washed over me. And I felt like, and and, and, in no way arrogantly, but I felt like this was my seat. You know, I have loved the University of Colorado for my entire life. I have been a proud, proud alumna of the university, probably one of the few people, few black people who went to CU that really found her place at CU and was very supported at CU. And I feel good about this university and this university system. And it really felt extremely positive to me. And I knew deep down inside that this was my seat. Mm-hmm. And I called up Joe the next day and said, you know, I think I want to run for this seat. And he was like, I'm here really you are. And yeah. here you are. So in case it's not clear listeners, I do want to add, University of Colorado refers to the Boulder, Denver, and Shoots Medical Campus, as well as the Colorado Springs campuses. So I just, I wanted to say that. So you have some sense of what we're talking about. So when yeah. I refer to CU, it's not just CU Boulder. So Regent James, you are the first Black woman elected to the board in over 44 years. I've been around a while, so I know that Rachel Noel served on the board until 1984. And how does that feel? I mean, how does that feel again? That that Because that's a very long gap. <laughs> that's a very long gap in time. And I, I just wonder, do you feel like an anomaly? So, well, first off, it is the honor of my lifetime to stand on Rachel Beale Knoll's shoulders because she was a powerhouse of education and a powerhouse for Black people, Black students, Black children, Black thought. I mean, she was definitely, you know, the, the she was the first female chair, first woman chair on the board, Black, white, or indifferent. She was the very first. She was really amazing in, in what she did. So to be able to be able to stand on her shoulders for this position is amazing to me. Here's the problem with boards and commissions, and not just in Colorado, but when they don't pay you for a position, a position that you have to raise fifty to $100,000 just to be able to, to run for and to be able to win, basically what they're saying then is this position is, is held for very wealthy, very elite people to make decisions on who will be educated, how they will be educated, and the cost of their education. So when I look at it from that standpoint, when I was, does it feel like a privilege to be in this seat? Yes, absolutely. It 100% is. However, it's time for us to knock down what that privilege means because this seat should be a privilege for anybody who wants to make a difference in education. And to be able to do that, we need to be able to change who can run for these types of seats, which is why I'm fighting right now, which is unpopular, but these positions should be paid positions to be able to allow more people who look like me, 
to be able to sit in this seat because we make a lot of important decisions, as you said, for the CU system, which is a $5.9 billion budget. Just to give you some reference on that, Denver's budget is about $3 billion. We're about $2.5 billion more than the city of Denver for the CU system. So you can see the importance of this, of this seat and then to make it so limiting that very few people have the ability to sit in this seat. Yeah, we, we need to change that. And yes, it's an extreme privilege. Yeah, well, thank you. So kind of changing channels just a bit. You and your husband, Scott Dura, is that how he pronounces his last name? Are the first Black licensees, as I understand it, to own a marijuana dispensary in the United States, the entire United States. You own a Denver dispensary, Simply Pure. So let's talk a bit, Regent James, about the realities of being the first. Mm. I've heard some describe being the first as exhilarating. I've heard others describe being the first as exhilarating, but lonely. Um, it can also make you a target. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about that? Being the first can be exhilarating. In my situation, we didn't plan to be the first. We didn't know that we were the first. We just wanted to be able to fight the drug war. And the best way to fight the drug war was going to be from inside. My brother was arrested when he was 17 years old for four and a half ounces of cannabis. And that four ounces of cannabis cost him 10 years of his life in the prison system. Four of those years, my brother was in Texas picking cotton. He had to pick 100 pounds of cotton every day to purchase his freedom. That is the reason why we decided to open up a dispensary, because we wanted to put a black face on what the cannabis industry was going to look like and a black face they couldn't make criminals out of. What do I mean by that? My husband and I have been background checked now since we were youngsters. We were both in the military. He was in the Marines. I was a naval officer. We have owned businesses and we've been in the press for, for years. So people were already familiar with us. So they weren't going to be able to say, oh, yeah, well, they're just, you know, you know, drug doing criminals. And from the day that we got licensed, we have been publicly speaking about the war on drugs, mass incarceration. And even here in Denver, 35 percent of the arrests for simple possession for cannabis happen to be black. And I asked people, when have you seen 35 percent black people anywhere in Colorado? And the only answer to that is in our prison system and arrest for cannabis. That's it. So we have been fighting this drug war since we began. So, yeah, exhilarating when it first happens and you open up the business. We have had knives and arrows and spears in our backs now for over 15 years, almost two decades. It's amazing the people that have fought us on wanting to end and wanting to end the drug war. It has been an uphill battle with police, with politicians, with white liberal moms who, <laughs> oh gee, don't get me started on, 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 on that whole demographic. But it, it's, it's a demographic of folks that want to protect children, their children in rich white neighborhoods at the expense of black mothers and their children in inner city neighborhoods because of the drug war. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I know you've traveled around. Is Colorado, or was Colorado, your education home? In other words, did you attend elementary, middle, and high school here in Colorado? Yes, but not all the way through. So every, every four years, we left Colorado and went to Europe and came back. Okay. So 
I've lost track on how many different elementary schools I went to, but I started okay. elementary, I believe, in Frankfurt, Germany. My dad was stationed at Lowry, Buckley, Norad, and Peatfield. So he covered every base in Colorado. So yes, I had been to elementary, junior high, high school, and college in Colorado, just not all the way through. Okay. And I know you attended and you just oh. talked about that and your connection and affiliation to CU Boulder. You graduated, I believe, in 1986. And I also see as part of your resume that you attended the University of Southern California. Is that correct? No, well, I was part of the inaugural class of what we call the Los Angeles African Americans, Los Angeles African American Women's Public Policy Institute. So law uh -huh. high at the University of Southern California. So I have a certificate from them for being part of that inaugural class. Oh, God. Uh, okay. Still graduating Black women in public policy. So we are excited to be able to be a part of that. So at CU Boulder, what was your major, minor? What was your interest then? Yeah. You know what? I had no idea. And it was really interesting. So I went to CU. I'm first generation. I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I didn't know what a major was. I didn't know that you could be marketing directors or own a business or <laughs> run for regent. I knew none of this. So I graduated with a degree in sociology and in military science. Military science was my degree because I was the first African first African American woman commissioned through the Naval ROTC program at the University of Colorado. So when I graduated, I was a naval officer. And I, you know, over the time that I've had to speak to students and different people, because I, I speak a lot about about the process and, and leadership, I wish I could tell young people that I had this grand plan for what it was that I wanted to be and all of the great things that I wanted to do. Because when I look back on my resume, my resume, I'm proud of my resume, extremely proud of it. But I want young people to know that my resume was a part of not knowing what to do next um, and things, you know, come your way and to say yes, you know, don't be fearful, say yes. And so I said yes to the University of Colorado while I was there, you know, people were of interest to me. And so I majored in sociology. I, I had I had no intention on being a professor or teaching or doing research. This is just one of those great things in life that I just didn't know. I didn't know to, you know, get a marketing degree. I didn't know to get a political science degree. I didn't know. And when somebody asked me, well, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm interested in people. <laughs> it works. It works. Yeah. Sociology. Now, from you know, Regent James, from your perspective, what's changed about the CU Boulder campus since that's of the campuses that you as a member of the Board of Regents kind of oversee or supervise, essentially? What's changed about the CU Boulder campus in your perspective since you were a student? So... A lot has changed. One of the big things that I noticed has changed is that we have less students of color today than we did when I was a student back in, in the early 1980s. That is a huge issue for us. What has changed on the positive side is we now have the cause where I had a chance to see you at, which is the Center for African, Amer for African and African American Studies. It was the last identity group to be able to get a center on, on CU Boulder's campus, but we are really proud that we have finally gotten it to the point where we're at right now. What has also changed is the aspects of what we look at diversity on all of our campuses. And as you said, it's 
not just CU Boulder, but CU Denver, UCCS in Colorado Springs, and Anschutz, which is our medical facility. Anschutz has done a phenomenal job on bringing in students of color. As a matter of fact, Anschutz trains most of our doctors and nurses here in the state of Colorado, and we do phenomenal research. Um, so we're really proud of the work that we're doing there to be able to increase diversity and in how we look at diversity. The thing that I'm really proud of on this Board of Regents right now is we track diversity. And we not just we not only track diversity in our student population, but we track it within our staff, our faculty, and our graduation rates. It's always fantastic to talk about how many students we get through the door or in the door, but how many students do we get through, you know, all the way through to graduation. So now we have lots of programs where we try to see at what point is it that we're losing students? And are we losing students because of workload? Are they having to work full-time, take care of families, and be students? Are we losing them because of financial difficulties? So we are putting in safety nets to be able to protect students and faculty to be able to hold on to retention as we move forward. So I think that the focus from the University of Colorado system on Black and Brown students, staff, and faculty has increased dramatically. And now we are just opening the door to let people know that this is a great place for students to come. And just FYI, the rate of, of black and brown students coming into four-year universities is also dropping. So we need to be able to fix that nationwide and not just in CU, but just across the board. Don't let people tell you that education doesn't matter. Don't let people tell you that voting doesn't matter. Don't let people tell you that you know, the ability to plan for your future doesn't matter because that's what the, that's what we are essentially doing. You know, I feel remiss. I probably should have asked this sooner, but I'll ask it now. What does the CU Board of Regents do? <laughs> I, I'm a faculty member at CU Boulder, and my sense of the Board of Regents is fiduciary. And Tell me about it, because I'm sure we have listeners, we have folks out there wondering, CU Board of, what is a region? What do they do? So can yeah. you, you tell us a bit about your role? Absolutely. And, you know, and that's a fair question because, you know, I had to actually look that up too. I'm like, what, what does the Board of Regents do? So we have nine regions in the state of Colorado. We have one regent for each congressional district and then one at-large regent. I represent CD1, which effectively is Denver, and the regents are the governing board for the University of Colorado system. So yes, we approve the budget. We approve any tuition hikes. We hire the president of the university. We hire the treasurer of the university. We set a lot of different policies for the university to be able to abide by. We try very hard not to get, well, we don't get involved in curriculum. So we get a lot of emails from people talking about CRT and they want to see different, you know, sources, different levels of, of, of instruction happening at the university. Not, we to don't, interrupt, not to interrupt Region James, but just again, listeners, CRT, critical race okay. theory, but go ahead. Yes, critical race theory. So we don't get involved in, in course curriculum and, and different situations like that. We look at it to the point to where we hire the president, who the president and his staff works then with the chancellors to be able to make that happen. We do hire the chancellors. So we hire the leadership of the university to be able to do the work of the university. And if we are good at what we do as being a governing board, then that means that we should not get into the way of the leadership that we 
um, hired to do the job. I like this system because it's very reminiscent of the military system and the chain of command, how we look at things. So, you know, the president of the United States should not be telling the generals and the admirals how to run their military service, right? So the same type of a thing that you look at it that way, we are the governing board for the university, for the entire university system. You know, Regent James, I believe this is correct that you, because I know you've been a campaign manager and you've sat on a variety of boards and committees and still, (laughs) and transition teams. And if I have this correct, you are on the transition team for Mike Johnston, who's the newly elected mayor of Denver. And I'm just wondering, in terms of being a member of his transition team, does that run up against, in other words, did you have to receive some sort of special dispensation or what have you? Again, to to do that, in other words, looking at potential conflicts of interest and that type of thing in your role as a member of the Board of Regents. And then, again, you know, you've been an activist, you've been out there for a long time. How does that work now? So... I was asked to be on the board. I mean, I'm sorry, on the transition team for for Mayor Mike Johnson, and I'm thrilled to be able to do so. As many people would probably say, well, he was not your first or second choice for mayor. No, he was not. And as a matter of fact, if anybody follows me, I am a huge proponent of women in leadership and people of color in leadership. And Mike Johnson is neither of those. However, when his staff reached out and asked if I would be interested in serving on his transition team, I enthusiastically said yes. And the reason why I would say yes to being on this transition team is because I want to be able to build a Denver that works for everybody. And the one thing that I do know, and especially sitting on this board of regents and sitting on even Governor Polis's transition team, is if we are not at the table, then we are what's for dinner. And there are decisions that are made by people who are at the table that other folks may never even hear about because those decisions may affect you greatly, but don't trickle down, you know, for discussion, you know, past those who are actually seated at the table making those decisions. So I want to see Denver be a place that we can all be proud of. I want to see Denver work for all groups and all nationalities and all genders. And it is something that I am beyond passionate about. And the place in the transition team that I am working on is excise and licensing. And excise and licensing is a place where I have had lots of conflict over the last 12 years with the current administration and the current mayor's office on how they are licensing cannabis companies and how they are monitoring cannabis companies to be able to do what the voters have asked us to be able to do. So I am thrilled to be able to be in this very important business piece of the transition team, and I am thrilled to be able to work with newly elected Mayor Mike Johnson. And it says a lot about him and his leadership to be able to bring on people who were so critical of him running as a candidate. So it says a lot. You know, most of us... And maybe this is a Michelle Simpson thing, so maybe I need to own this. But many of us, myself included, are unlikely to run for any office. Okay. It's not on But who knows? Who knows? At least, you never know. At least for the foreseeable future. 
never know. You never know. Now tell us what what did you learn about yourself? Because you you did flip. So you were on the other side as a candidate, no longer a campaign manager or what have you, advisor. What did you learn about yourself? Uh, patience is something that I have to work on. <laughs> I also learned how amazingly difficult it is for to hear people say things about you that aren't true and that you don't have the ability to correct. What do I mean by that? And being on the other side, I mean, I have had my fair share of attacking people who are running for office, bringing out their shortcomings when I don't agree with them. But as a candidate, it is and because of the rise of social media, which if anybody knows, I am big into social media. I appreciate social media. However, it is amazingly difficult to speak about what is important to you when a person or a group of people will latch on to one aspect because no one human being is one thought or one action, right? We are a complex group of, of thoughts and feelings and different things. Uh, and so it was very difficult to run as a black woman business owner, as a Democrat, and have Democrats attack me for <laughs> for not being progressive. I think that that was the thing that probably bothered me the most. You know, I mean, how am I not progressive? You know, y'all get the hell out of here. You know, I'm the most progressive person I know, you know. But, you know, because I didn't fall in line with their particular group or clique of people, it was hard to correct what they were saying without coming off as combative. And yo, you know, I consider myself a warrior. I'm happy to come off as combative. But, <laughs> but when you're trying to win an election, yeah, that, that's yeah. not usually what people want to see from you, right? And as a Black um, woman also trying to kind of resist kind of the usual tropes. So, yeah, it gets. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I definitely. Black woman. But you know what? I lean into the angry black woman. Yeah, mm -hmm. I am the angry black woman. And if you're a black woman and you ain't angry, I want to know why. Because, you know, we have a lot to be angry over. Now, mm -hmm. don't get it confused. Just because I'm angry about something doesn't mean that I'm not approachable and that we can't talk or those different types of things. But, yeah, I, I, I lean completely into the angry black woman trope. 100 <laughs> percent. And you are listening to Black Talk on KGNU. KGNU FM, 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390, Denver. My name is Michelle Simpson. Today we are speaking with Wanda James. Wanda James is a member of the nine-person Board of Regents for the University of Colorado System. Wanda James is the very first Black woman regent to serve in that role in over 44 years. What advice would you give someone who's considering, seriously considering running for any office? What would you, what would you say? What would you tell them? Build your base. Number one, you need to go into every election. You need to count your votes and know that you can win your votes. In other words, I currently have a group of people that I know will vote for me at a great number, right? Get your finances in line. I don't care what it is that you're running for. You're going to have to raise money. 
And raising money is difficult because we as Black people have often been taught, you never ask people for money. You don't do that. What's wrong with you? But you have to understand that you're not asking people for money for you. You're asking people for money to help you make a difference, right? As the sole Black woman regent on this board, as the only Black regent on this board, when I'm asking people to give me money, it's because I want people to know that I am going to stand up for what it is that, for, for your rights, for your privileges, of of becoming a student, of being a student, of being a faculty member. I want people to know that when I'm out there raising money, I'm not asking you to give money to me. I'm asking you to give money to our collective voice to be able to make a difference in the growth that we're doing. So you've got to get comfortable with, with asking for money. So you've got to know the base of people who are going to vote for you and the base of people who are going to fund you. Those are two of the most important things that you have got to be able to bring to the table if you're even considering running for office. So if you're running for office and you have a lot of great thoughts, but you don't know a lot of people or you're new to a place and you don't have a base, I would say work on your base before it is before you before you declare your candidacy for whatever particular office that you're going to run for. Yeah. And then the next part is, is how are you going to fund that? And you've got to figure out what that number, what what that group of people that you're going to go talk to to help you fund, to be able to fund that candidacy. In a Regent James question, I work with a lot of young Black women, you know, on campus, off campus. What challenges, and I, I guess I'm going to ask you, uh, be as specific as you can and as comfortable as you are being specific. What challenges did you come up against that were unique to you as a Black woman running? Because I think in terms of kind of the financial piece, absolutely. When you talk about make certain to build your base, <clears throat> what came up that was kind of maybe specific and maybe specific to you, you know, Wanda James, but specific to you as a Black woman running for public office? Uh, I want to put another caveat on that. Specific to me as a Black woman running as a Democrat for public office or okay. a Black business owner running as a Democrat for public okay. office. Okay. That's really difficult. And I got to tell you, the Dems need to figure out how they are going to talk to Black women business, black women business owners. As I'm sure you're aware, the number one group right now of new business owners or growing business owners happens to be Black women. And I celebrate that. But sadly, even that has come out of the fact that so many talented, educated, hardworking, smart Black women have found that corporate America is not necessarily working for them. So now they've started businesses. Um, and I am thrilled behind that because as an entrepreneur, there is nothing that I can recommend more that if you've got the if you've got the heart to be an entrepreneur, and when I say the heart, I mean the ups and the downs are 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 brutal. I mean, one day you're making $100,000, next day you're making, you know, $1. And that is the complete course of entrepreneurism. And you've got to be able to stick it out for each time. And it's very difficult. However, the fact that Black women are now becoming business owners, and we are now also considered the backbone of the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is definitively anti-small business, it is. And then this is where I was saying a lot of the folks that were saying I'm not progressive because, you know, of what I have to do to be able to keep my business practices where they're at. The Democratic Party is going to have to come to terms with how we are going to discuss business, small business and people of color. And it's it's extremely difficult. 
it's extremely difficult being the owner of a business and coming from a working family background. I mean, my family, you know, my dad says we weren't poor, we were broke, but either way, we didn't have money. So, you know, it's, it's interesting when I look at a lot of the organizations that support Democrats and Democrats running for office have a real issue with me because I'm about getting people paid. I don't want you to be a, a low-level employee. I want you to be in the C-suite. I want you to be an owner. And that's what I'm fighting for, you know? And so I think a lot of times when I have these discussions with people, Democrats don't know what to do with it. And you will get attacked on, on your business acumen being a Democrat in business. No, well, thank you. You're a veteran. You are. That's, that's, another, that's another really big issue. Is, <laughs> I mean, well, let's just go ahead and put it out there. I'm pro Second Amendment. As a matter of fact, I founded the 1770 Armory and Gun Club three years ago after I received my first series of death threats. And that was unpopular with a lot of Democrats. A lot of Democrats wanted to use what I believe about the Second Amendment and keeping us and our Black bodies safe as a negative, right? And I thoroughly understand the issues with gun violence. And I think that the issue with gun violence right now, quite frankly, is, is lack of understanding and lack of training, which is what the 1770 Armory was created to be able to do, was to be able to give people training who chose to buy guns to protect themselves and their families, but had little to no understanding and no training with gun ownership and how to keep them and their families safe. Okay. Okay. You know, I read that <clears throat> it was a result of your, and I think the quote was personal values that encouraged you to go through the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps at CU Boulder. Can you say more about that? When I guess when I read personal values, I wanted to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So when I came back to school my sophomore year, almost most of my friends had left. I was very alone for the first time after my after a great freshman year and and then came back a sophomore year. It was very lonely and I didn't CU Boulder is intimidating. You know, 35,000, you know, students, many of them white, many of them wealthy. I didn't feel like I had a spot anymore. And so I do I did what most people do is you lean into the areas of which you feel personally comfortable. And one of the areas I was personally comfortable with was was military service. That's how I grew up. I was a, as you started this conversation, I was a military brat, Air Force brat. And so it was the place that I felt most comfortable. And so I joined Naval ROTC because I wanted to do something different than my dad. I, you know, he was in the Air Force. I couldn't do that. So I went to the Navy. <laughs> we had better uniforms. You look real good and all that all white, let me tell you. No, and there was a lot of things about the Navy that I, I was really proud of and felt very comfortable with. And I will say that it was because of Master Chief Roger Hill and, and Commander Greg Young, who is still a good friend of mine. These gentlemen made sure that I graduated. You know, they made sure that I did the work, that I understood what my responsibilities were. They gave me a home and a place and a, and a place of being. And I am forever thankful for that. Yeah, and that's critical. So you became a naval officer and you worked, weren't you hunting down submarines? <laughs> I was a sub hunter. I was what we call an IUSS officer, Integrated Underwater Sound Surveillance. And we worked on a system called SOSIS, Underwater Sound Surveillance, or 
sonar underwater sound, sound surveillance. And basically, we hunted submarines at the time, mostly Russian submarines. So we hunted all of them. We knew where all of the world's submarines were at any given time. But we kept an eye on the Russian submarines during the, the Cold War of the 1990s. Well, I can't help. I can't help but, you know, just take a little detour, just a little detour. Any brief thoughts that you might have about the recent submersible implosion? So, yeah, the reports have already come out and they've said that the Navy was the ones that found that the submersible sub imploded. It imploded at 1,200 feet. A, I'm not surprised. B, I'm not surprised. And C, I am not surprised. The issue that we saw with the submarine one, and as we're all finding out now, I think just about every engineer that looked at it said, don't do this. The fact that it went down more than once and came up okay, every time a submarine goes into the water, the amount of pressure on that submarine is amazingly great, and it requires tremendous maintenance. So I am not surprised at all that the submarine imploded when it did. And I'm not surprised that the Navy found the implosion, the signature of that implosion when it happened. So we were able to tell, tell I forgot the name of the company, water, whatever, the, whatever the name of the company was, yeah. exactly when the implosion happened and where it happened and how deep it happened. Okay. Wow. Respect well, the water, y'all. We know less about the oceans than we know about space. Yeah. Uh, and I think people take the ocean for, for granted. And when the ocean, I mean, it's unforgiving, you know, one mistake on the water or in the water and, uh, you know, there's not much left of us to find of you. Yeah. Yeah. We just saw the results of that. We just saw the results. How do the kind of racial, political, social, economic inequities that have been alive and well in the cannabis industry and criminal justice system connect to, if they do, and fuel, again, if they do, your aims as a member of the Board of Regents. But say that again, how do they connect to, say, I'm sorry. Yeah, if they saying. intersect at all in terms of kind of fueling your aims as a member of the, the University of Colorado Board of Regents, if it does. So, yeah, so here's the thing, you know, and people don't know this. If you get caught with cannabis, you can lose any types of federal funding that you have for school. So a lot of times in being caught with cannabis, it doesn't mean like alcohol, you know, you, your parents get mad at you and, and nothing happens, but you can lose your scholarships. As a matter of fact, we've had a number of black men who have worked for us who became chefs after losing their scholarships in college because of being caught with a joint. You know, it's obscene that we are at the place right now where we are still socially exiling people for the use of cannabis when on college campuses, you know, <laughs> cannabis has been at least a, a joke of, of the Stone College student, you know, since colleges began. We need to stop with, with having cannabis use impact any student's ability to continue to go to school. That's first and foremost, decriminalizing 100%. Secondly, Aranschutz, our uh, medical campus, is doing a lot of the studies in the state on cannabis use, on epilepsy, on high-potency cannabis, how it affects on schizophrenia, and all of this types of research. One of my goals is to get you know, Anschutz to look at this a little bit more not just as the negative, like what are the negative connotations that happen, you know, with the use of cannabis, but what are the positive uses that come out of cannabis? And there are many. 
And of course, you know, everything comes along with using any substance, you know, in, in, in moderation. Ironically, drinking too much water can actually kill you as well, too. So there are so many things that we need to learn about this plant. So the closer that we can get to legalization will allow university systems and hospital systems such as Anschutz to be able to better study what this plant is able to do instead of us having to have, we have to have mobile labs because we can't bring the cannabis onto campus. And there's all kinds of ridiculousness that we have to do to get around studying the Schedule One illegal plant. Got it. Bridget James, if I were to ask your eight colleagues on the University of Colorado Board of Regents to describe you, and not that they speak in one voice, but what would they most likely say, individually or collectively? What would they say? Well, I think we're all getting ready to know each other. I think, it, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, and I asked you to ask, I'm kind of curious now. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think that we have formed some really close relationships. Mm -hmm. Former Speaker of the House, Frank McNulty, who is a, you know, diehard Republican, I think folks are expecting he and I not to get along. And ironically, Frank and I have formed what I would say is a wonderful friendship. Mm -hmm. I have formed a great relationship with Glenn Gallegos, who is also a Republican on the board. Mark Vandriel, who is also a Republican on the board. He and I have found a great space of friendship. You know, it's it's pretty amazing for folks that have, you know, some very key differences on how we will do things that we tend to agree a lot on where we are on the educational process. But I think my colleagues would say for anybody that's ever worked with me is I'm probably one of the toughest individuals that they've ever worked with, but I speak my truth 100% of the time and I don't cower from any fight. So if you want to bring it, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> I mean, it's, I consider myself a warrior and I consider myself, you know, I consider myself truthful, open, and honest 100% of the time. And that works against sometimes the people that I'm pulling for and with, because I don't believe that we can fix things unless we're having honest and open conversations. I understand that. You know, well, as a faculty member of the CU Boulder campus, what would you like me, not that you need me to do it, you can do it yourself, but I'm probably on the ground in a different way. What would you like me to communicate to students? In other words, what should they expect from Regent Wanda James? Because you are in that role. You were just, again, elected. And I believe you were, I don't know if they call it inaugurated. I don't know what they call it. Crossing the burning sands. I don't know what they call the, the process in January 2023. But you you remain in that role, if I have this date correct, until 2029. Pictures? Am I, am Pictures. I right about that? So what can they expect from Regent Wanda James? What should Man. they look forward to? And, you know, in my classes, we're often talking about the CU structure and administration and our place in it and all of that. What What can I communicate to those students? What do you teach? I'm in philosophy. I teach ethics. I also teach women and gender studies. And I'm also part of the Renee Cran Wellness Institute, where we focus on mental health and wellness. 
as it uh, kind of surrounds the life and impacts the lives of young people. So you're just talking to everything that's just right up my alley. So yes, I am an elected to the CU Board of Regents. I am limited on what it is that a CU Regent actually has direct impact or control over. And we talked a little bit about that. First and foremost, in my job of regent, I would like anybody that is having any type of an issue at the University of Colorado campus. My door is open. My phone number is out there. My email is out there. I want to be the voice at the table for students that were like myself, for faculty that are like you, myself. I am, I would like to be that person that they feel comfortable going to and helping them resolve any issue that they have. And if it's not in something that I can fix immediately on my own, I will make sure that I walk it through whatever process it is. And I will walk it through every step with them to make sure that the outcome is something that works in favor or the best favor that we can for that particular student or faculty member. And secondly, look, <laughs> I'm an elected official. I've got a job to do at the University of Colorado, but I also have what I call a bully pulpit. You know, at this point, people pay more attention to me now because I'm an elected official. And I am happy to use that bully pulpit to move the the words, the influence, the the positions of of women, Latinos, black folks, first gens. I mean, I am it is not lost on me that I'm not supposed to be here. I am a, I was raised by a single parent father that didn't go to college. I shouldn't even have a degree. I believe the percentage of me getting a degree in the world was like 2% or something ridiculous, right? I am a warrior. So let me know how I can fight for you and how I can help. Because at the end of the day, that's why I ran for office, right? Because I want to make a difference in people's lives, starting with what I can officially do for you. But if there are other things and there are other doors that we can break down together, man, I'm, I'm willing to join that army and, and, uh, and to help break down doors. Because at the end of the day, that's what my election means, right? <laughs> I, I mean, yes, I'm the first Black woman in 44 years to be elected to the seat. I won't be the last and it won't be another 44 years after me. As a matter of fact, I can't say it yet because he hasn't declared yet, but I'm hoping to be able to bring another Black regent onto this board that may be running for the open seat left by Leslie Smith as she steps down from the Board of Regents in 2024. I so, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. So, I am fighting 100% of the time to make sure that people that look like me are giving every advantage of what the, quite frankly, of what the old, what the good old boys club used to bring to the table, right? You know, so. I want us to feel like what it must feel like to have, you know, you know, a good young black girl at the table instead of a girl. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, trying the op- I'm trying to think what the opposite of that would be, right? But yeah, if if we can open up that pipeline, I can't tell you how important that is to me, right? Because, you know, let's get real in politics for a minute r- real quick. And, and folks, my campaign managers, anybody else hates when I do this, but for... Women and minorities to do better in the world, it means that white men have to give up a lot, right? Because right now, 90% of CEO positions in corporate in Fortune 100 companies are are run by white men. The only way that we're going to get more women and people of color in that is if less white men have those positions. 
So I am thrilled to be able to see how many more CEOs we can get placed in positions that aren't white men. If we want to see more and better things happen in an elected office, right now, white men are, I believe, 72% of, of congressional seats. Here in Colorado, we have two white male senators. We only have, well, we have three now. We have three congresswomen. I'm looking to see that senator piece. We need to have people of color or a woman in as the next senator from the great state of Colorado. So we need to change all of these things. And it's not that I'm anti-white guy, but we can't continue to vote for the white man and say that we want to see something different. So we must bring more people to the table. And when I hear women like you say, well, I'm not thinking about running for office, you and I are going to sit down because we're going to find something that you might want to run for or opening that portal to being able to bring more people to through that to be able to have folks run for office. But that's well, why we'll I'm see. here. <laughs> we'll I'm see. Here. I'm, here, I'm here to make a difference and to change what people believe about what it is that we can do together. So yeah. warrior profile is, is where I come at this at. So that's, please tell your students, we're here to make a difference. And no, absolutely. Well, you know, as make- we kind of wrap things up, I just want to ask you, Regent James, you've been in your role since January. What have you, what have you found most surprising? What's been the most surprising thing to you? And maybe it's not one thing, but you know, when I ask that question, what's the first thing that comes to mind that's really been surprising to you that perhaps going into this, you know, because you are very organized and you do your work, you do your research. And so I, I, I know you came in prepared, but you can't prepare for everything. So what's been most surprising? The enormity of the CU system. Hmm. Oh my goodness. I mean, they are cities within cities. The size and the scope of this system is is phenomenal. That's what I, I think comes across to any new regent sitting inside when they give you all of the the, the aspects of, of, of all four campuses and the system office. It's huge. The immense whiteness of this system is shocking to me. Since I had been on board and I was insistent that we find people of color for every office that we are hiring for. So we've been able to bring on one black VP, our VP of communications, Jeff Howard, is our only black VP. I was insistent on making sure that we had a large group of people of color in which to make that decision from. There's a lot of whiteness. I mean, even in the state of Colorado, you know, we're the third largest employer in the state. And we are nowhere near the numbers that we should be in our our functionings of of minority hires at all. So that is a a big piece that I I want to see changed immediately. And then I think that the third thing is that is shocking to me as just an elected official, not as a regent, but just as an elected official, is how people treat our elected officials. And we are given a deference which, I mean, it's honorable and fantastic and, and, and lovely, don't get me wrong, but people need to understand that elected officials aren't celebrities. We are elected by you to do a job and people need to hold our feet to the fire instead of getting excited about being invited to the governor's you know, Easter luncheon or the mayor's Christmas party. We need to make sure that we are holding every elected official to the things that they said that they were going to do when they ran. 
and if they showed up at your black church for for election purposes, but you haven't seen them since, make sure that you reach out and make sure that they're still on top of the things that you discussed. Too many black folks, we get excited about the idea that we've met an elected official. No, we're public servants. We're not Beyonce. So we need to be treated as such. No, I appreciate you saying that. And in a book four, kind of I end our conversation, I, I have to say to you just how wonderful it is to have you as a regent of the University of Colorado. I've attended several events now where you have been present. Um, the last event was you were on stage and people were receiving honors and distinguished awards and all that. Anyway, and I was so pleased to be there because I had nominated someone who got one of those awards. I was like, yes. And you were there and you were on stage. And just to see you, you know, we, we hadn't had this conversation, but just to see you on stage and to know that you're in that role. I've been part of the CU system for a very, very, very long time, made a world of difference. And I just wanted to say that to you. I'm sure many people say that to you, but I haven't. So I wanted to take a moment and just thank you for having the courage and <laughs> desire to run, but you're, you're doing it. And, and as I say, you show up. And for anybody who says representation doesn't matter, that's wrong. They don't understand. But they don't understand. for me, Black woman faculty member who has been around, as I said, for a very, very, very long time, it makes a huge difference to me and a whole host of other people. But speaking for myself, I just wanted to thank you, Regent James. That means the absolute world to me. And it's always funny because the only people I ever hear that say representation doesn't matter is white men. And, you know, when I, I hear them say, you know, representation doesn't matter. And I'm like, that's because in on our money, there are white men. We just got out of the Capitol. We went for a Capitol days where we did some lobbying with CSU and, and, uh, and uh, Colorado Mesa University. But as I was walking through the Supreme Court and through the Capitol, and I asked Regent Mark Vendriel, and he and I, like I said, we have a great relationship. And I says, what does it feel like to you to walk through these halls and every picture and every bust and every painting that's adorned, every single one of them has a white man is a white man or has a white man involved in it. You know, one of the paintings that really bothered me in the rotunda of the Capitol was the baptism of Pocahontas. And it's just, and I said, you know, how does this feel to you as a white man to see all of this? And he said something really interesting to me, and he's a historian. He says, you know, he says, obviously, you know, it feels incredible to see all this. He says, but I know that none of these white men got here without the help of women or with people of color. And he went through, because he is a historian, mm -hmm. all of the different Supreme Court justices that came in that had amazing women behind them or different things that we were just kind of talking about. And I says, I get that, but representation matters. And we need to start as of today, changing what those pictures and those busts of people who are leading this nation look like moving forward. So. Yeah. It, Regent is a teeny tiny little piece. 
I just hope that I inspire that young freshman that doesn't know why she's there. Maybe I can inspire her to figure it out before I did, and maybe she will be a Supreme Court justice. It, it, you know what I mean? Or, you know, the chancellor of CU Boulder or the president of CU Boulder. And I'm looking forward to that. And please know that for every search that we do at the University of Colorado, we will have a very strong contingency of people who look like me in in that line to be considered. So thank you for that. I think that means for me. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on Block Talk this morning. It has been just my deepest pleasure. And as I said at the outset, so looking forward to having an opportunity to uh, converse with you. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for exceeding my expectations. And so until next time, until next time, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. And hey, we talking black. <laughs> there we go. My name is Michelle Simpson, the host of Blog Talk, and I'd like to thank each and every one of you who tuned in today to listen to my conversation with Wanda James. Wanda James is the first Black woman elected to the University of Colorado's Board of Regents in over 44 years. I look forward to having you back with me on August the 10th at 8.32 a.m. for another edition of Black Talk. Thank you. Then